This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Mr. Uh, D.J. Taylor. Mr. Taylor, who read history at Oxford, is a renowned author, critic, and biographer. Among his better-known books are his biography of George Orwell, Bright Young People, and The Prose Factory. Today, we'll be speaking about his newest book, The Lost Girls, Love and Literature in Wartime London. Welcome, Mr. Taylor. It's very good to be with you. Uh, Mr. Taylor, what is the thesis of your book? Well, the book is about, um, I suppose you call them the circle of young women whom in the 1940s uh, hung around the extraordinary figure of Cyril Connolly, who edited the famous wartime literary magazine Horizon. And um, uh, some of them ended up being married to him. Some of them he fruitlessly or purposely pursued. Um, they were all kind of, it's not accurate to describe them really as moths to his flame, because sometimes they had very distinctive and individual personalities. And uh, the, the literary, the London literary world of the 1940s is full of them. And yet uh, they were very, although they were sort of bright and ind- independent minded and purposeful people, they were also in some cases very damaged and very vulnerable. And the lives that they led did not make happy reading in a lot of cases. But um, they burned very brightly through the 1940s and then turn up in a lot of the literature written after it. For example, in the novels of Evening War and Anthony Pohl. And there's always a tremendous debate as to whether Sonia Brownell, who married George Orwell the second time around in 1949, almost on his deathbed, uh, is the original of Julia in 1984. So there's, there's a, great deal of, a great deal going on there in the world that they inhabited. Can you delineate for us who exactly were the four young ladies who form, as it were, the four on whom I concentrate uh, in The Lost Girls? Uh, Sonia Brownell, who worked on Horizon and, uh, as I say, married married Orwell in 1949. A woman, an American or half-American girl called Lise Lubbock, who was uh, Connolly's longtime girl girlfriend, and we pined desperately for him to marry her, but then but then he didn't. So she uh, she went back to America and, in fact, married a uh, an academic psychologist called Sigmund Koch. Uh, the third is a woman called Janetta Woolley, uh, who only in fact died 18 months ago at the grand age of 96, who had 
countless husbands and significant others and uh, was taken on, on holiday by Connolly to France at the age of 17 and their relationship went on from there. And the fourth, perhaps possibly better, one of the, the better known to posterity is the extraordinary Barbara Skelton, the great femme fatales of the 1940s, uh, who subsequently, um, who was married to Connolly in the 1950s and subsequently wrote some absolutely scarifying volumes of memoirs in which he appears to very ill effect. So those are my, those are my principal quartet. What do these girls have in common by way of social class origins and early life education? That's an interesting question because they, they tended to come from the same sort of social bracket. They were sort of middle class tending to upper middle class, so quite posh in, in English terms. Uh, their backgrounds were all in some way sort of flawed by absent parents or estrangements. Uh, Lise Lubbock was, um, was an orphan. Barbara was more or less expelled from the family home at the age of 15. Uh, Janetta's mother left her father because she wanted a sort of bohemian lifestyle and took Janetta with her. Uh, Sonia's family background was very troubled. Among other things, she had a very, uh, very strict Catholic education against which she rebelled. And so, in, in all, in, 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 to a certain extent, they, they all share this damage. This um, they're also very badly educated. Uh, a feature of the English educational system of the 1930s. These were very bright, intelligent uh, people, but they'd not been properly educated. And a lot of the time, they were just learning their way through the worlds of um, you know, literature and art in which they in which they wanted to shine. Actually, that uh, leads up to my next question, which which uh, is, were any of the girls bookish or possessed with literary ambitions before becoming acquainted with Connolly? Um, I think they all sort of, they had hankerings. Sonia, from a very early stage, when she was, she was associated with the, the Euston Road School of Painting, the artists, British artists of the late 1930s. And it was remembered of her even then that she wanted to be a great, she wanted to be the muse or the amanuensis of a great man. That was what she pined to be. Stephen Spender once said that she was looking for some sort of, she was looking to someone from, to save her from the world of her upbringing and take her off into a world of pagan artists and geniuses at whose feet she could sit. Um, Lisa, I think, was rather, had sort of rather more modest ambitions. She simply wanted to marry Connolly, I think, and bear his children. Uh, Janetta certainly, um, in, in, we certainly sort of was, uh, had been to art school and, and, and had artistic leanings. And, uh, and Barbara um, was very conscious of her bad education, very much wanted to learn, I think, with the aim of, of then producing something. She, she certainly wanted to write, which is an ambition she, she fulfilled in her 30s and 40s. Can you tell the audience who Cyril Connolly was circa September 1939 and why his periodical Horizons subsequently became famous? Cyril Connolly was, in those days, a, um, an, a, a, a well-known literary critic. He wrote a, a wonderful book called Enemies of Promise in 1938, which even now is a kind of guidebook to how not and how. It's, it's sort of half autobiography, half a guide to how you, how you become a writer. Uh, a wonderful kind of series of autobiographical fragments. Connolly began this magazine, Horizon. He, he, one of the reasons Connolly wanted to start a literary magazine was to, so that he didn't have to fight in the Second World War, to be, to be brutally honest. But uh, Horizon kind of seized the moment, and he had writers like Evening War and George Orwell wrote for him, Dylan Thomas. Um, he printed the work of artists and um, celebrated poets. A lot of people, some people regarded it, probably the majority of people regarded it as the most significant 
English literary magazine of the war era. But then Connolly's detractors, of whom there were always more than a few, maintained that it was just a, a magazine in which he sort of printed the work of his friends, and it was just a kind of London coterie which excluded people who weren't in the club. But it did, Connolly did print some very fine work. I mean, a lot of Orwell's most famous 1940s essays appeared in it. He printed the whole of the Even Wars, The Loved One, in 1948. That's, that was, that, that's his kind of legacy, I think, to the, you know, to the literary world that followed. Uh, despite your anxiety about psychoanalyzing them, would it be in fact the case that uh, all of the, the four lost girls seem to come from broken and near-broken homes, and that explains to some degree the differences in behavior between them and, say, Sonia Brunel's friend Clarissa Churchill? I think that's true. They um, they were all. I mean, it, I, I I don't have any training in this area, and I trust these kind of speculations. But in some ways, they're all in search of father figures. Um, they're all in search of older men that they. And, and I think you know, a characteristic of the um, of the literary 1940s was that they, you know, these were the women who worked on these these literary magazines and were um, frequenting central London, Bloomsbury in particular. I mean, the men with whom they associated tended to be older than them, and they tended to be writers and artists and, um, you, you know, people much more highly regarded in the world than they were. So it was in some ways quite difficult for them to transcend the role of satellites, I suppose, and, you know, define individual roles for themselves. And they, they did it by, um, you know, they, they worked on them. And, well, I mean, Sonia, for example, was at one point almost left in charge of Horizon in the late 1940s when Connolly got bored with it and went on extended holidays. So she played a very significant role in the way that this magazine functioned, which I think is sometimes forgotten in all the extraordinary sort of reverence that is still paid to Connolly 45 years after his death. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So you would agree with Anthony Pohl's comment in his uh, book, Keep the Ball Rolling, that Connolly in the Horizon's later years in the 19, late 1940s was, quote, a sort of pantheus in reverse, unquote, with the women... A sort of... Pantheus from the Buckeye, with women holding him up rather than tearing him apart. I think that's a very good point. In fact, yes, you, you can't, Pohl enjoyed quite sort of... A, quite admired Connolly generally, but enjoyed in some cases, quite equivocal relationships with him. And I think towards the end, yes, Connolly was sustained by, um, was sustained by his women rather than sort of allowing them all to sort of luxuriate in his glamour. And had it not been for Sonia and had it not been for Lise, I think the magazine would have closed probably two or three years before it, it did. And its, it's wealthy proprietor, uh, Peter Watson, would have, would have grown less indulgent. And um, in the end, it lasted precisely 10 years, which I think was a pretty good run. Where after which, of course, the girls went on to make other lives for themselves and continue to cut swathes through the, you know, through the societies in which they moved. Why was Lise Lubbock attracted to Connolly or became involved in Connolly, given the fact that at the time, he, Connolly was involved with, in essence, two women already? 
and of course, Lise was married herself uh, at this point. Um, yes, working out the, the, you know, the, these relationships are all very complex because um, Polly in particular um, was, was specialized in having two or three women on the go simultaneously and playing off one against the other. You know, he would sort of present one with what he thought were the better qualities of one of her rivals and somehow expect the women to put up with this, which, which I suppose leads to the question of, I mean, Connolly was not the world's most physically attractive man. He was short and squat and stocky and bald and fat and all that, this kind of thing. And yet, um, I, I was very interested to try and find out why women were so attracted to him. And um, the, in fact, the, the, the daughter of Peter Quinnell, one of his friends and a contributor to Horizon in the 1940s, and in fact, it was Quinnell who came up with the whole idea of this, social category called the lost girls and uh, his daughter um said that if you were a girl of 17 introduced to Cyril Connolly at a dinner party uh, within five minutes he made you feel that you were the most intelligent attractive person on earth your opinion really mattered and he wished to hear more from you and you left that dinner party thinking that you know life had no choice of fruit on in store to offer somehow he worked this conversational magic on people would it be correct to say that in the book you um, have a higher opinion of Connolly than you did, say, in the prose factory, where you characterized Connolly as, quote, the worst sort of critic, unquote? Uh, no, no, no. That how I think uh, you, yes. There's, there's an extra part of that sentence in the prose factory where I go back and praise him. I think um, when I said in there that he was the worst sort of critic, I simply meant that he was very prone to his person, simply reducing the whole thing to his personal enthusiasms. No, I think I think Connolly is a titanic figure in 1940s literature, not even quite, if not for what he wrote, then for the other people that he sponsored. I mean, this is a man who decided to print Orwell's essays, essay Boys, Boys Weeklies in 1940, which in some ways established Orwell's reputation as an essayist. And um, it may only have been, you know, he knew all because they'd been friends at school way, way back, but he was a great sort of sponsor of him. And I think... Um, you know, his critical books, I think, will survive. And his, uh, sometimes, you, sometimes you get exasperated by his critical persona, I think, you know, and the eternal sorrowing over, over sort of France and the French language and the classics and so forth. But no, I think he's a, he's a very distinctive figure in, um, in 20th century English literature. Yet the book seems to imply that uh, Connolly's literary influence was played out by the early 1950s. Even after, I think, in 52, he got his gig at the, um, at the Times. He got his gig at the Sunday Times, exactly, which lasted till the end of his life. And I think, I think you're probably right to suggest that. His, his best work was done before 1950. Of course, in England, by 19, the early 1950s, the critical winds, different kind of winds were blowing in across English literature, different kind of writers, you know, the, the angry young men, which is a, a rather bogus affiliation, but that's what they call them. The Angry Young Men and the Movement and Kingsley Amos and Philip Larkin. And these are writers who actually revered, revered Connolly. Um, and Larkin is supposed to have said to Connolly when they met, Sir, you formed me. But um, the kind of things they were writing were not the sort of, it wasn't the sort of literature that Connolly had grown up in. And whereas some post-war writers in the post-war world were able to adapt themselves to these new kind of styles. I mean, for example, Anthony Pohl became great friends uh, with Kingsley Amos in the 1950s. Connolly, I think, was rather detached from this. He was also congenitally lazy, and um, he didn't write uh, in the 1950s and 60s. He didn't write the great books that were expected of him, and his correspondence is full of angry remonstrances from publishers saying, you know, where is the book you promised to write about French literature? Where is the study of the modern novel? 
So I think, you know, idleness and in the end almost anachronism were what, what sort of pulled him down. How would you say the Paget sisters differed from the Lost Girls? Would you consider the Paget sisters oh, the Paget also sisters, Lost Girls? Yes, yes. The, the two Paget sisters, one of whom married Arthur Kessler, and the other one, um, well, was in fact, the other one was proposed to by George Orwell but turned him down. Um, I think the Pagets, um, uh, well, one of them obviously went off and married and became Mrs. Kersler, but Celia, the other one, um, by the late 1940s, had a very important job working in the Foreign Office and was much more sort of, um, I'm, I think was much more sort of profitably aligned with, uh, you know, the world's professional life, probably sort of more level-headed, probably more sensible. And as, as you may know, it was, it was Celia, she was then called Celia Kerwin, when working for the International Research Department, who was responsible for Orwell's favorite famous list of, of fellow travelers who, who shouldn't be allowed to write pamphlets for distribution to um, you know, Eastern Europe in the late 1940s. So she's, she's rather a significant person in the history of all of this. Would it be correct to say that uh, at bottom you consider the Lost Girls to be subjects rather than objects with a certain degree of agency? Um... Anthony Pohl's famous distinction was that you can divide the world up into agents and patients, people who do things and people who have things done to them or for them. And um, there is a sense in which they were satellites revolving around, you know, the great men in whose, in whose orbit they fell. But um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to give them, to try and give them an individual voice uh, to show what they did in their own terms rather than simply under somebody else's tutelage. And also, too, to give a voice to some of the victims of all of this, because, um, I mean, for example, the, the, the children of uh, lost girls tended not to have a very good time of it. And in fact, one of the reasons that led me to write the book was listening to one of Janetta's daughters talk about the way she was brought up. And um, after you listened to that, you thought, heaven, some people had terrible upbringings that I'm glad I never experienced myself. So there was the idea of giving a voice uh, to, to these kind of people, too. Would it be correct to say that Anthony Pohl's Pamela Flitton is the most well-known of the literary projections of the Lost Girls? And uh, I, think it, I think it probably is. I mean, Pohl more or less admitted that, he, that Barbara Skelton is Pamela in Dance Music of Time, and she was very keen to be identified as Pamela, too. But there's a long debate that's been going on for years about the exact significance of Sonia with regard to Julia, in 1984. My own opinion is that, um, that Julia, um, Winston Smith's mistress, owes quite a lot to, to Sonia, but there are, there are hints of other women in there too. And, and it's more a composite portrait of several, several girls that Orwell knew rather than the exact uh, representation of, uh, of Sonia. Do you have a favorite one besides uh, Anthony Pohl's uh, Pamela Flinton? Um, uh, ooh, in, in terms of their projection into novels, uh, Evelyn War is very funny about them. Uh, in, in his Sword of Honor trilogy, Connolly is reproduced as uh, Everard Spruce, who, uh, who, married, who, um, <coughs> who, who edits a literary magazine in the 1940s. And uh, he has a, a group of secretaries who work for him known as Spruce's Veiled Ladies. And they are clearly, one of them is clearly based on Janetta because she walks around the house with, uh, with, with no shoes on. And this had actually happened. She once opened the door to Evelyn Waugh, uh, who was horrified by the fact that she wasn't wearing shoes and referred to her thereafter as Mrs. Bluefeet. And she features in his letters to Nancy Mitford under this pseudonym, this super K. 
and didn't actually Wall regard her as some sort of dangerous uh, left-wing communist? He regarded, he, there's, there's a sentence in one of Wall's letters where he says that, I fear that Cyril has been associating too much with communist young ladies. And I think he meant Janetta by that. She was quite left-wing at that point. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? If I wanted people to take one thing away from my book, it would be that, um, I suppose, it would be to say that um, the literary world of the 1940s, which I've always been fascinated, largely you know, drawn into it by my interest in war, in Orwell and Pohl, I would say that it's not all about the men. There are other sides to it, too, sometimes very interesting ones. And also, I, the other thing I suppose connected to that is that the, the period of the Second World War was an extraordinary environment, uh, quite artificial, quite unlike anything that had ever been seen before in British history. And, and a lot of, none of this would have happened, I think, in quite the same way had not the bombs been falling and the blitz been going on. There would certainly have not been that degree of freedom and license and you know, the kind of artistic conditions, I suppose, which encouraged magazines like Horizon to, uh, to flourish. So um, it was all very much a product of its time, but it's, a, it's an entirely fascinating one. Do you mind telling the audience what's your next project? Um, at the moment, I'm three-quarters of the way through a novel, which I hope to finish um, sometime towards the end of this year. But I've just signed up to write a second, but um, I hope almost entirely new biography of George Orwell, because uh, there's a great deal of new material become available in 16 years now since the, the first one was published. And uh, it seemed an opportune time to sit down and really seriously reconsider him in the light of all this new stuff. Well, on that, uh, hearing that good news, which I'm sure will be a wonderful book as well, I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Taylor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. Thank you.